Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the be- or the deepening of your Marian devotion. Today, I'm very honored to be speaking uh, with an ambassador, with a foreign diplomat, and uh, he has written a new book called The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. And so today, I'm speaking with Edward Habsburg, who is Hungary's ambassador to the Holy See and the Sovereign Order of Malta. His family reigned in Austria, Hungary, Germany, and Spain, and quite a few other places. He's also known as Archduke Edward of Austria and is a diplomat and social media personality. And I'm very grateful that you're joining me today to discuss your new book and for us to have this great conversation about how to live our lives uh, from uh, really inspired by your own livelihood and your own family line. So thanks so much, Edward, for joining me. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Father Edward. Yeah, and uh, actually, I remember a few years ago, I was uh, in Washington, D.C., and so I was at the National Shrine at the Basilica, and I went downstairs into the crypt. I went to all the Marian altars, and I simply tweeted at you. I tweeted this image of Our Lady of Hungary or whatever and said a little prayer for you because I've known your presence on social media and such, and it was a very popular post. I was surprised how far and how wide it reached, and so, uh, yeah, I've been familiar with your work for some time, so I was very excited to see this work. Thank you very much for having me. I'm in the wonderful situation. I only have 58,000 followers, uh, oh, 59,000, I think. Uh, and, and that allows me to interact, still interact with almost everybody who reaches out to me. And of course, you have a very positive presence on Twitter. And as we share the faith and our passion to speak also about Our Lady, I think we, we immediately had um, something going there. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And so you're so you're from the family line of the Habsburg. And we talked a little bit uh, in the bio that I just read about you, uh, just kind of some of the brief history, the how your family has reigned in Austria and other places. So I feel like we need a little history class just to maybe remind people, orient people in their history, their world history, about who the Habsburg family is and and maybe your contributions to society at large. Well, the Habsburgs, um, we can trace them back about a thousand years, just before the year thousand, uh, the first Habsburgs popped up, but they entered uh, European and world history uh, around 1273, when the first Habsburg became um, king of the Holy Roman Empire. And from 1273 on, for the next 800 years, um, the Habsburgs were part of influence and shaped European and world history. Um, For a while, they still lived in Switzerland, but very soon they spread out to Austria, Bohemia, Hungary, later on to Burgundy, which is Belgium nowadays, and Netherlands, and finally Spain and the rest of the world. And for about 180 years, there were two lines of the Habsburgs that was in the 16th and 17th century. And the Spanish line basically ruled over large parts of the world, while the Austrian branch uh, looked after Central Europe, mostly in Germany. And, uh, and then the Spanish line died out in 1700. And then there were only the Austrian Habsburgs. And uh, <clears throat> then... About 1806, the Holy Roman Empire ended, and then the Habsburgs were only in Austria, Hungary, and surrounding countries. 
and the Austrian-Hungarian uh, monarchy ended in 1918 with the end of the First World War and with the exile of one of the most popular Habsburgs, Blessed Emperor Karl, our last emperor. That, in a nutshell, is the family history. We are still around. There is about 400 of us all over the world. Um, most of us are still Catholic and have lots of children. And, uh, and we have a WhatsApp group nowadays in the family where we communicate and talk about things. So you see, we are firmly in the 21st century. That's amazing. And so you are Hungary's ambassador to the Holy See and to the Sovereign Order of Malta. So who appointed you to that position? That would be uh, the Hungarian government. That would be the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. That would be our president. My, my direct boss is our president, Kotli Novak. Um, but uh, I was picked out, I think, as a potential ambassador, and I'm not a classical career diplomat. I was sort of I did something very different before that. I was spokesman of a Catholic bishop in Austria. And before that, I worked in, uh, in script writing and in, um, as an animation producer. Oh, wow. So this is not your, it's not your typical um, diplomatic career. And I think I was picked because I speak languages, because I have worked for the church. And if you've worked five years for the Catholic church, you have a, a certain understanding of church. And that's helpful when you're ambassador to the Vatican and uh, because I'm pretty relaxed with media. And, um, and I think those were some of the reasons why I was asked to take this post. And I, I really had to hit the floor running and learning by doing because, of course, I never got a formation as a diplomat. But in my family, they say some of it is part of your education. If you're a Habsburg, you automatically uh, think internationally. You live between several countries. You speak several languages. And um, so I would have never, never in my life thought that I would end up as a diplomat because I'm, I'm not the diplomatic type at all. Uh, I just imagine I, I wrote, I wrote um, an outline for an Austrian zombie movie while I was a scriptwriter. <laughs> so that's not exactly the type. But uh, I found out now being here since eight years that it is the greatest and most wonderful time and fulfilling duty that I've ever had in my life. Of course, apart from my family, which we have six children and um, first grandchild is going to land with God's help end of May. So I'm, I'm getting into that age bracket now. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm not sure who the American ambassador is anymore. I know one of the gang riches was, uh, was the ambassador for America to the Holy See uh, yes, a, a yes. few years ago. Callista was, was a real friend. She was here for three or four years, and we really got friends. And Newt was here too, so we, I got to know him too. Right now, it's Joe Donnelly. He's very nice and has been very helpful already. And what do you do in your role as the ambassador to the Holy See? That's a very good question. Um, quite a lot. It's not the, the yawning and golf playing kind of, of job. It's a, a very intense job. Right now, I'm in in total madness because the Holy Father is going to come to Hungary in a very short oh. time for a visit. So this is a moment where a diplomat is, is really in the, in the dense part of a washing machine tumbling. Sure. Um, I, um, but mostly what you do is you represent your country around the Holy See. That entails trying to keep the channels open between the Hungarian government and the Vatican Secretary of State. 
that entails um, doing good propaganda for your country. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, uh, speaking about your country around the media here around the Holy See, that means representing your country to the head of 1.3 billion people worldwide. Um, there is very rarely a real crisis between your countries. But if there would be, my ministry would expect me to have the mobile numbers of all the important people in the Vatican to be able to reach them at once. Um, and then, of course, you really try to explain what your country is doing to all your colleagues here and, uh, and to the Vatican. Uh, the Holy See and the Vatican see eye to eye, and, and, and Hungary see eye to eye in quite a few topics. In others, we have different points of view. This happens between every country. Um, but my joy is really to build bridges and to, to make things easier. It's not very difficult. The Hungarians love church. The Hungarians are a Christian nation since thousand years. And they are incredibly happy that the Holy Father is going to visit us again after 2021. Well, that's wonderful. And so you wrote this book, The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. Of course, there are seven rules then, seven different chapters, seven different reflections. How did you come to identify uh, what these rules that you wanted to put forward as the Habsburg Way? How did you come to really say, this is really the way that my family lives? That's a very, very good question, Father Edward. I um... Of course, it's not uh, something written in stone by my family. I, I looked at the family history. I thought, you know, gut, gut feeling, if I would ask you, uh, Habsburg, what would be typical things for the Habsburgs? Most people would at once talking about the Habsburg marriage politics. Um, they, they married off their daughters um, and they got married and had lots of children. In fact, there's a famous Latin saying, Bella Gerant Alii to Felix Austria Nube. Others may wage wars, you happy Austria get married. And uh, this, is, this is a bit, you know, the marriage thing, of course, and the other duh thing, of course, is Catholic. The Habsburgs were always Catholic. Those two came on their own without even thinking. And then I, 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 sort, of, I sort of begin to think what are other things the Habsburgs always stood for. Uh, and I asked uh, family members, I asked uh, our head of family, Carl, the son of Otto, grandson of Blessed Emperor Karl. Uh, I read books written by Otto, uh, Blessed Emperor Karl's son, where he speaks about the, the core values of the Habsburgs. And so I came up with this list of seven uh, points that, but the point of this book is not a family history of the Habsburgs, because those have been done in many different ways. Quite recently by Martin Rady, he wrote a fantastic history of the Habsburgs that I used for my book. The point is to present these seven rules or seven principles or seven values of the Habsburgs for our time and to suggest to everyone who reads the book, I'd like to, I'd like to implement that in my life or I'd like our society to be more like that or this is something I'd like to see among our politicians. Definitely. And as I went through and I looked at the seven of them, so you already mentioned marriage. So that's one of the things people think of. That's actually the first rule, get married. And of course, that probably addresses certain cultural uh, themes of our day where maybe couples live together, they don't get married, they, t they delay marriage. Like I know couples who are engaged for years before they get married. So, so your encouragement, get married, for example. And have lots of children. And, and have lots yes. of children. 
That's right. <laughs> and populate the earth. You know, that's what God told Adam and Eve, be fertile and yeah. multiply. And that, that's, well, that's more than That's more than 20 years ago, Father Edwards. We now live in the 21st century. God surely has changed his mind. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I just want to maybe touch upon a few of these. For example, of course, uh, being a person of faith that you are, being the ambassador to the Holy See, the second rule, and actually you have two parts, 2A and 2B, you have be Catholic, be Catholic and practice your faith. So what does it mean to you to practice your Catholic faith? You know, you know we live in a time, not as much in the United States, but in Europe, where you have the impression that to be a good politician, you must be as neutral as possible. Nobody should know about your faith. Uh, don't wave your religion into my face. Be ideally um, an agnostic. Then you can be voted for by everyone. And uh, this is an idea I think that was basically born, I think, around the time of John F. Kennedy. The idea that my Catholic faith will not influence my politics was something that Kennedy in his famous speech before his election, uh, where people were nervous that he would be, as a Catholic, he would receive his orders from the Pope. And, um, and, and he said, no, no, my faith is not going to influence my decisions. And this is, in my opinion, something very wrong. If you are Catholic, people should know you are Catholic. It should make a difference in your actions as a private person, but also as a politician. There should be certain things that you simply shouldn't do. Now, I give you one example from my family history. Um, there is a very nice passage in the book where I compare Ferdinand II um, of, of Austria and Cardinal Richelieu in France. Um, oh. Henry Kissinger in his book, Diplomacy, makes this comparison. Uh, Richelieu was a Catholic cardinal, but he said that state reason was so high that he would probably also make a deal with the Muslims in order to help France. And Ferdinand II, a Holy Roman Emperor, was so Catholic that he didn't make concessions to the Protestant princes in his realm, even if that would have solved all his problems and given him peace at once, because he said, I'm a Catholic and I have duties towards my people. And uh, that caused him a lot of trouble. And Cardinal Richard, he couldn't understand this attitude uh, and, and Kissinger often by Kant either when he, when he writes in his book. So what I'm saying is it should make a difference. There were Habsburgs, and that's why I wrote Practice Your Faith. There were Habsburg rulers that were, I would say, very weak thoughts when it came to the Catholic faith. Um, unfortunately, a few of them, uh, three in a row, during the time of the Reformation and the beginning Counter-Reformation, some of the Habsburg rulers didn't really behave like Catholics, mm. but uh, were crypto-Protestants. And um, that, that is not a good thing, but it happens. And usually when that happens, thank God, in the Habsburg family, other family members shown through their faith. And we have quite a few examples of those. And uh, I, I also, you know, we, we're, we're famous for being a very Catholic family, but we had no priestly vocation between 1790 and 1990, 200 years of many, many, many young men, very, very Catholic, not one priestly vocation. The first one after 200 years was my brother, Paul, who is a priest. Um, so you see, there, is, there are ways of being Catholic. And, uh, 
And I believe that while the Habsburgs mostly were, and, and the last emperor of the Habsburgs was sort of the epitome of being Catholic because he's a blessed of the Catholic church and will be one day saint. And his wife, her process has begun. Um, some others weren't. So it's a big and uh, topic. And I took two chapters of my book to speak about that. Yeah, I think, you know, just in our lives for a, a lot of people, they kind of maybe disregard their faith, as you said, that um, kind, kind of some of the earlier comments you made, that that they don't allow their faith to influence the decisions they make, whereas we should, if we really believe these things, and if we believe what Jesus taught, well, then that should be the guiding principle of everything I do. It should touch upon who I am and what I do. So uh, I think that's a great lesson that you bring out for us, and great encouragement to practice and to live your faith. Yes. The, the next point in the in in the chapter in the in among the chapters one of my favorite because i begin it with a star wars quote and oh, yeah. i don't know whether you like star wars but i say believe in the empire and in subsidiarity one of the most surprising points of my book while when i did the research for it was that um, although the habsburgs were first holy roman emperors and then emperors of hungary uh, austrian hungary um, the ideas of the Habsburgs are surprisingly close to many ideas of the United States. Uh, you wouldn't think so. You wouldn't think that tyrants from the past and, um, and most democratic democracy in the world, the United States, could be so close. But ideas of freedom are very similar and subsidiarity, especially the idea that you have to respect the lower levels. You have to respect the single state within the Union and in the, in the Holy Roman Empire and also in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you have to respect the single nations, their languages, their habits, their local rights, their local institutions, the way they do things locally. This is, I would say, one of the central core elements of what the Habsburgs tried to do for several hundred years. And this is also how the United States are built. You're built bottom up and not top down. And an element of that is to be found in the Habsburg Empire. And as you continue to talk about your own family life and such, well, one of the other rules you bring out is to uh, to come to know who you are. And I think that's a very interesting statement because, you know, we can really go back to the Gospels and Jesus says to the apostles, well, who do you say that I am? And so Jesus wants them to say who he is. And then, you know, for the apostles, as they come to know who Jesus is, well, then they can know who they are. They can know that they are beloved children of the Father, that they are disciples and followers of Jesus. And so they come to understand this identity as a believer and as a Christian. And so what is your recommendation if someone is reading your book and, and you're telling them, well, know who you are? Well, how do they begin that process of identifying who they are? That's a very good question. Now, it, usually it's quite easy. Uh, I would, I would begin saying, who were my parents? Who were my grandparents? Uh, what is the faith that my parents, um, what is the faith that my parents lived? What is my faith? What has shaped me? Um, first of all, I would ask, what is my faith? Um, but then also, what were the values that my parents carried? Uh, and all these things together are the traditions that, that, I, that I belong to. Now, I can say yes or no to them. If you are born a Habsburg, for instance, 
you have a ready-made identity that is handed over to you. You can accept this mantle or you can say no to it. But most of us should really go look at the roots, look at the traditions of her, their family and say, yes, this is good. You know, we live in a time and this point, know who you are and live accordingly, is a very, very strong uh, waking call for our times. We live in a time where there are forces, mostly te technocratical forces, that try to make us all lost singles without roots. Uh, internet wants to have us in front of screens, never interacting with other people, never knowing who we are, changing our identity every five minutes, um, gobbling up every uh, passing fad um, and, and being totally, being cheap, being cheap that can be uh, managed and are malleable by the internet. And against that is, is, is the path to find out who you are, know what your roots are, stand proudly for it, pass it on to your children and pass the values on. That's why I encourage people to have a big family and many children because your home with many children is a place where neither state nor internet nor passing fads can get in if you, if you are together. So all of this, of course, goes together. All these points belong together. But I'm, I'm, I'm passing on things that I've learned in my own family and that we've learned as a family of eight. Uh, yes, know who you are and live accordingly. And then the last lesson that I was really drawn to as I was looking through the book and reading it was the, the final lesson, and it's to die well. And I think about that dying well, and in our Catholic tradition, we have lots of stories of saints who have died well, that there they are on their deathbed. They're professing the name of Jesus. I think of even some American priests. Um, uh, I, I know that... Uh, the father, uh, the rosary priest, Father Patrick Payton, you know, he yeah. died maybe even saying the name of Jesus and Mary on his lips. And we have these holy deaths uh, of holy men and women. So I, I would think that as you live this way that you're proposing, as you know your faith, practice your faith, as you uh, uh, as you come to know who you are and live in that identity, well, then that's how you die well. But uh, are there examples of holy death in your own life that, that you drew upon so that we can die well or know how to die well? <laughs> well, uh, in my book, this is, I think, one of the most important chapters. I, I, I think I wrote in the chapter that I could have put it in the first point because the Habsburgs, always had the death in front of their eyes. Not just because we all should as Christians always know that we can be called at any time and should be ready, but also because they knew that their, their population uh, would look to the way they die as example. So you died publicly as an emperor. It wasn't mm. a private affair in some hospital room. You died publicly and you died as a Catholic and as a good Christian. Um, I will give you... Uh, Two, well, one private example, my grandmother, my mother always told me when grandmother died, she was praying with all her children around her deathbed. And, wow. uh, and she, and she when, when she died, she sat up and she looked with incredible joy to the door. And then she fell back. So, you know, we cannot guarantee. Some of us may die in a traffic accident. Some of us may die very slowly. Some of us may die losing their conscience and being in a coma. There is so many different ways that you can die. But what you can do is you can prepare for that because I, this is my theory is you cannot die a Christian death in prayer 
if you don't train that during your life. Mm. I, I, a friend always said to me, you cannot learn jogging by watching videos. And you cannot put up jogging. To a you have to begin by running short distances, longer distances, and then run all your life. And you will be able to run a long marathon. Your death is a long marathon. It's the ultimate big moment. If you don't train how to hold a rosary and how to pray it, and how to pray even if you're sick, then you won't be ready in the moment you die. And the point, of course, being that I believe, and the Habsburgs believe, that the moment of their death was probably the most important moment in their life, apart mm. from the baptism, of course. It decided about how they would spend eternity. They wanted to have a good death. It was very important to have a good death. I give you one image. I think half of humanity has watched the funeral of um, Queen Elizabeth last year. Mm. Everybody was touched by it, was touched by the people walking past the coffin in England, standing and queuing for hours. And at the end of her funeral, there was a moment when they lowered the coffin into the crypt of the castle. And while it was being lowered, they read her titles, Queen of England and, and all the other titles. Mm. And I immediately had to think of the Habsburg knocking ritual for the funeral, which was similar and then totally different. And the totally different, of course, is the Catholic element. Um, I've seen it twice because with Otto, but also with Empress uh, Dita, who was the wife of Blessed Carl, mm -hmm. whom I still met as a, as a young boy, uh, when she was buried, I was there. And it's incredible. You arrive in the, in, the, in the heart of Vienna at the door beside the Kapuziner Kirche, the Kapuzin Church, and the master of ceremonies with, with a coffin behind him and the crowd of people knocks at the door three times. You can see that on YouTube. You just, uh, you just search Habsburg knocking ritual. It's incredible. Mm. He knocks at the door and he says, uh, and the voice from the, by the Kapuzin priest where the crypt is, he says, who is there? And he says, um, Dita, Empress of Austria, Queen of Hungary, Queen of Bohemia, Queen of uh, Grand Duchess, and all the titles, half a minute of titles. And the voice from inside says, we don't know her. And then he knocks again, who goes there? And then they read all the achievements, everything that she did in her life. And the voice again says, we don't know her. And then they knock a third time and they say, Dita, a poor sinner. And then the door opens. And mm. this, is, this is the key. The Habsburgs were terribly aware that they were sinners. They were terribly aware that they're weak. They knew that they had to render God accountability for their life. And they wanted to show that even an emperor is just a poor sinner. And I think this, this ritual in one encapsulates what we, you know, um, somebody once said in a documentary, nowadays people seem to believe that the only thing you have to go to go to heaven is to die. Um, your life must be a preparation to get to heaven. Your life must be a preparation for death. You don't know how God will send death your way, but it will be good. It will be the way God gives it. And if possible, you can prepare for it by praying, by training to pray and to ask others to pray for you. Yeah. Sorry, this was my this was my Sunday sermon, but it's really a topic that is dear to my heart.
Yeah, that's very powerful. And uh, and to realize, you know, I'm a sinner in need of saving and Jesus came to save me. He's my redeemer. And now I place my hope in that redemption. And, you know, as we offer our prayers for the dead, we pray that they are with God forever in eternity. So that's very moving. And one of the ways... Can I interrupt? Can I interrupt? Yes, please. I forgot the most important example, of course, in our history is, of course, Blessed Carol. Sure. Blessed Carol, who in the eyes of the world was a loser. He um, took over the empire after nearly 70 years of Franz Joseph ruling in the middle of a war. He only ruled for one and a half years. He lost the war. He lost the empire. He failed twice in returning to Hungary as a king. He went to exile and he died miserably from a bronchitis in Madeira. It's a total loser in the eyes of the world. But this man first of all, offered his life for his people. He offered God to give his life so his people had peace. And during the disease, <clears throat> and he suffered very much during his disease, repeatedly said, I have to suffer so much for my people. He offered up his death for the people of his empire. Oh, wow. Now, think how many politicians do we have nowadays who would be ready to offer their life for their country? I don't know. Um, and he died praying with the eyes to the Blessed Sacrament, with his family praying around him, and his last words were Jesus. Wow. God really sent us a saint as the last emperor. He is the most popular Habsburg among my family. <clears throat> and if you look at my Twitter poll that just ended a few days ago, Blessed Emperor Karl was voted the favorite Habsburg by the Twitter democracy. Sure. Yeah, you know, as you were talking about Blessed Karl, I was going to ask you, well, why does he have a saint, a cause for sainthood? Why is he a saintly ruler? Why should we have a devotion to him? I see uh, people post about him. They hold him up as a great model of family life. But I think what you just said there about who he was that he offered his life, that he looked at the Blessed Sacrament, that he said all of that, that that's why he's a saint. That's why we look to him. Is that I, right? I would say, I would say that um, his death was at least a large part of the reason, I think, why he was canonized, because he died heroically. And I still believe to be a saint, you need to be heroic in your virtues. And But I think <clears throat> also his life, you know, I made a... I made a poll in my Habsburg family WhatsApp group uh, who your favorite saint was, uh, favorite Habsburg was. And many of the young ones said, Blessed Carl. And I asked why. And one of the young nieces wrote back because he tried to be perfect in his marriage and being a father, hmm. in his faith and being a Christian, and in his job, which happened to be emperor. Plus, he was a maker of peace. He was the only <clears throat> leading politician in Europe trying at least three times to bring about peace in the First World War after Pope Benedict XV had encouraged that. It wasn't it's his fault that it didn't work out. So he was a peacemaker, deeply devout, wonderful family father, deeply devout Catholic, great emperor whose reign was shaped by his Catholic ideas, whose social measures were shaped by his Catholic ideas. He was just wonderful. He was just wonderful. And I wish that far many more people get to know this 
humble giant of faith. Uh, I was I was lucky enough to be in Texas last year for a conference on Blessed Carol um, in Dallas. There were 700 people in the conference hall. And wow. Most of them were young, lots of children and families. They all love Blessed Carol. If you want to get to know him, read the new biography by Charles Coulomb. It came out last year. Immensely readable. I had a problem with Charles Coulomb. Is I love him very much. He will. He, his introduction is one chapter about general history and one chapter about the idea of empire. That might put you off. But once you get through these things, and you need to read them to understand where Carl comes from, and his biography begins, it's one of the most readable books that I've ever read, and you get to understand why this man is the same. Well, that's great. You know, I don't know too much about Blessed Carl. I've only seen him, like, again, being circulated around the internet. I've, I know people who talk about him, and obviously now uh, you've given a, me a, just a good little introduction and uh, whet my appetite enough that I might go learn more about him through that uh, biography uh, that you just referenced. And I think one of the things about dying well, one of these saintly virtues that we have, of course, is Marian devotion. And this is a podcast that I started because of my love for Mary and interacting with other people. And uh, I'm always curious about marrying devotion of an individual, for example. And uh, But as you're from Hungary and, and such, what can you share about the Hungarian devotion to Our Lady? Well, when I turn my head away from our, from our conversation and look to the left, I have um, an icon of Our Lady of Maria Poch. It is an icon, a miraculous icon in Hungary, in the east of Hungary. This is a great Marian sanctuary uh, of Hungary. The Hungarians love Our Lady. The first big gesture of this love was a thousand years ago. Our first big king, um, Saint uh, King Stephen of Hungary, in the year oh, yeah. thousand more or less, he received his crown from, from the Pope. And when he was crowned, he took the crown off and he gave it symbolically to Our Lady to say she is Queen of Hungary. Oh, wow. So for Hungarians, Our Lady is the queen, the real queen. Um, of course, um, I have a rosary in my pocket. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't feel whole if I don't have it in my pocket. Sure. But I also use it as often as I can. Um, we pray rosary with my family every afternoon. I have to say we... We really began doing this since I'm in Rome, and um, very encouraging. And um, you know, my Marian devotion is I've I got engaged with my wife in Medjugorje. Um, Faith and Our Lady were always present. For my mother, the rosary was normal. For my grandmother, her mother, the rosary was always in the hand, and you heard it rattling quietly when she spoke with you. Um, these things shape us. Um, it's a humble prayer. It's a prayer that not everybody gets. Most people, intellectuals, might have problems with that. But I, I find it is something very easy. And if you one day will be in solitary confinement in prison, you still have your ten fingers in the dark. And if you are dying and can't speak anymore, you can still pray the rosary. It is your lifeline to heaven. And Our Lady, uh, if, you, if you keep friendship with Our Lady, Our Lady will see you through. I, I believe that strongly and, um, and thank God that we have this wonderful Catholic faith that includes Our Lady. 
Well, thank you for those beautiful words about Our Lady and the devotion of yourself, but also your family line, the Habsburgs, whose way of life you propose in the Habsburg way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. It's available from Sophia Institute Press. So if people want to learn more about you, Archduke, uh, how can they do that? They just follow me on Twitter. You go on Twitter, you follow me. You may interact with me. I'm still in the luxurious position, as I said in the beginning, that I can still answer to tweets. And um, I tweet a mix of everyday work stuff, Hungary, Habsburg, family, the odd monster movie. So, yeah, it's a nice mix. Yeah, I know one of the people you've interacted with on Twitter is uh, a person from Wisconsin. I'm a priest in Wisconsin, Green Bay. Her name is Amanda Lauer. And uh, yes. you, you you enjoy her her writings, I believe. She she writes a lot of different novels. So, what do you yes. appreciate? What do you appreciate about the book she's written? I'm, I have to be very honest. Uh, I have to pass this on to my daughters. My daughters adored her historical novels and and read them and wrote about them. And um, Amanda is a great friend, and she also helped with the other book I wrote. I wrote a little children's book about oh. um, about a little double-headed eagle and she helped me so no amanda and i we we know each other since several years and she's a wonderful help and a great writer so i i encourage everybody to read her to read her novels they are absolutely wonderful but i i can only go on the word of my daughters because they read it but they <laughs> they swallowed it up really that's wonderful so not only should you go look at, up amanda lower's work she's been a guest on my show too but also pick up the habsburg way so thank you uh, so much archduke edward Habsburg, for joining me today thank you very much for your time i i felt it was a meeting of kindred spirits yeah, definitely. I learned so much and I'm uh, very grateful for your witness in the public life uh, for our Catholic faith. Thank you. Let's stay in touch, Father Edward. Definitely. Will do.